You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Asha. Today, we have Justin Clark here to talk to us about the history of godlessness in America. How are you doing today? Pretty good. How are you? Pretty good. I quickly skimmed through your thesis um, and then I downloaded Prejudices by make I can't I forgot his name. Oh, H.L. Mencken. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, I really quickly skimmed through your thesis. So uh, forgive me if I misunderstood anything or okay. if I totally missed the point. OK. And OK. So um, if I go to a museum, like not in the U.S., but uh, in, in let's say in London, they still have the Magna Carta um, and it mm. hasn't. Uh, what have they done? So um, there are multiple copies of the Magna Carta. Um, one of them I actually saw in 2012 when I was uh, in England studying abroad. Uh-huh. Um, it was in Lincoln when I saw it there um, at the, the local uh, university. And one of the ways that they displayed that particular copy of the Magna Carta was that it was in a dark room. So it was in a dark room and then it had very specific types of lighting that displayed on the the copy of the Magna Carta and what what it would do was the, the setup was was as such so that when you walked in the room the lights would come on so they weren't on all the time and so these are things that they'll do especially with you know very important um, documents whether it's a copy of the Magna Carta or Leonardo da Vinci's notebooks which copies of those um, some of those are at the uh, the British Library mm-hmm. um, and uh, and so. They, what they'll do is they will display them um, often in a darkened room. There will often be a prompt either by walking into the room or per- pressing a button that will turn the lights on. And then those lights are calibrated so as not to damage um, the documents with, um, you know, ultraviolet light. So the, the, a lot of, and there are very specific standards about like, if you're okay, if you're displaying this type of paper, um, that you have to make sure that you're only using these types of lighting setups so that you don't damage the materials. Okay. Um, that makes sense. Uh, yeah. Don't ever get me started on the British museum. I'm I know, right. About <laughs> everything they loaded from India and how nothing there belongs there. But, um, right. I've heard this lecture, so let's not, uh, continue on this track. No, you're fine. Uh, if, if you would humor me for just a moment, I would like to just discuss briefly. Um, one of the main exercises that we did with my study abroad course was discuss the sort of ethical quandary of the the Parthenon marbles, which used to be called the Elgin marbles, named after Lord Elgin. He was a you know colonialist who took this stuff from Greece because he thought that the the Greece the the, the Greek people were. Um, essentially uh, destroying the Parthenon marbles. So he stole them <laughs> um, and took them to Britain. Um, and so one of the courses during our course, the, my study abroad course there, we basically discussed like, should he have done that? Um, no. and, and ultimately we sort of came down on, no, he shouldn't have done that at all. Um, and that they should be returned to um, the, the people. I think, I can't remember if it's, it's either Benedict Anderson or Eric Hobsbawm wrote a really great piece about why the, the Parthenon marbles should be returned. And it, it was because like put in a book. Yeah. Theirs. Right. Um, it doesn't I'm belong sorry. to them. <laughs> the Nur, David Cameron actually told the prime minister of India 
hey, if we started returning the Kohinoor diamond, then it's going to set a precedent. And then uh -huh. all the other people we looted from, they'll start asking for their stuff back. He literally said that. And I can post the link below yeah. in the description box. But yeah, all of it should be returned. And no, it should not have been taken. Uh, uh, and uh, that's all I have to say. No, I'm with you on that. <laughs> <laughs> So um, your thesis is actually incredibly different from your work on preservation of history. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's like a 100, it, it's like a new, almost like a new topic, but mm -hmm. um, we will fig uh, figure out, I guess, how to, I don't know. Can you, uh, I don't know. Oh, yeah, the cl a clergy used to, before they had printers, it was the clergy who would copy papers from hand, and um, they would have, it would take years for them to scribe books uh, by hand, and they preserved a lot of books. So is that the good, uh, good, um, thread <laughs> yeah that, that, that's a that's an all right track i mean i think the main one that i would use to kind of discuss my thesis since it primarily takes place in the mid yeah. to late 19th century uh in the late 1800s is sort of talking about the value of newspapers to my research so digital newspapers were an absolute godsend for my research on um you know free thinkers and their sort of religious counterparts in the late 19th century oh, okay um before we start, um, the first question I had is, who is Robert Ingersoll? That's a great question. So Robert Green Ingersoll was a late 19th century order and free thinker um, based out of Peoria, Illinois, and then eventually he moved to DC and then New York. Um, and he was known as the great agnostic. So he gave speeches all across the country, um, basically that were very, very critical of religion and organized religion and specifically Christianity. And he was very influenced by um, free thinkers like Thomas Paine, um, you know, American revolutionary. And he, um, he was uh, also a, a sort of politician in a sense. Um, he was, he was close friends with a few U.S. presidents. He was, his brother was a, was a influential congressman, Eben Ingersoll, Clark Ingersoll. Um, and at the time of his death in 1899, he was basically the most popular public speaker in America next to, to Mark Twain, and actually was pretty lucrative at doing it. Um, I think one year he made upwards of $100,000 in like 1896 or seven, doing the public speaking secret, uh, circuit, which is kind of remarkable when you think about it. Why did people want, I mean, of course, I know they didn't have TV or any radio back then, but why mm -hmm. did people want to hear, hear him speak? I think a part of it was that regardless of whether you agreed with him about religion or not, Robert Ingersoll was deeply respected by the American public generally um, for a couple of reasons. One, um, he fought in the Civil War. He fought in the Battle of Shiloh. He was a prisoner of war, ironically enough, under Nathan Bedford Forrest, who would go on to found the Klan. Um, and so he was known as Colonel Ingersoll. That was kind of a shorthand for him because that was his rank during the Union in the Union during the Civil War. The other part of it was that he had sort of become a national figure through his um, you know, public speeches that had nothing to do with religion. So there were two of them. Um, one is his, um, you know, his plumed night speech, which was 
this speech that he gave in 1876 in favor of presidential candidate James G. Blaine. Um, and then the other was actually, I think, around the same year, which is the Masters of War speech that he actually gave in my hometown of Indianapolis in 1876 at a veterans memorial function, um, basically talking about the evils of war and the necessities of peace and sort of talked about how the United States got into the Civil War, the causes of the war, obviously slavery and a lot of other stuff like that related to that, um, and then sort of why future generations should should embark on peace. So those were kind of the two speeches that kind of pushed him into national prominence. And then he sort of piggybacked on that to be able to say, okay, well, if you liked all this stuff I talked about in relationship to politics, maybe you'll be interested in hearing what I have to say about religion. And people were very interested. And I think the idea of somebody being so outwardly blasphemous, somebody who was just so, uh, and especially someone as respected as he was, like, you know, he was um, you know, kind of in many ways, uh, a sort of a, a member of the sort of like liberal kind of bourgeois elite. So he could kind of get away with saying a lot of this stuff because of his sort of professional status as a lawyer and as a politician. So he was able to sort of, I think that's why he was so successful was because people were more willing to hear him because of the sort of respect that he had garnered from the American public. Are you sure it's the master of war and not the vision of war? Yeah, it's the vision of war speech. Yeah, sorry. I often get those mixed up and they've been printed a couple different ways. Um, but yes, it's the vision of war speech. Yeah. Okay. That's Just right. checking. I'm sorry. I, no I, uh, worries. I'm glad you, you know, it's uh, sometimes I get those mixed up. Uh, I'm also like, I've also liked Bob Dylan's music and he has that song Master of War. So I sometimes mix them up. But yeah, it's the vision of war speech they gave in 1876 in Indianapolis. Yeah. Uh, OK, um, well, like I said, it's probably uh, any of those. I bet you the uh, uh, vision of war is probably still relevant today. <laughs> yes. Uh, um, well, anytime. I mean, because we're always at war and never at peace. Yes. And it looks like Eugene Debs um, was a uh, wrote about the recollections of Ingersoll. Yes. Yeah. So, um, and in fact, I, I've actually written a whole essay on this and I just got back from the Midwestern History Conference where I presented this paper, but I sort of talked more in depth about their friendship. So um, Robert Ingersoll and Eugene V. Debs, of course, Debs, the known socialist leader, ran for for president multiple times. In the while US in socialist. prison and got two million votes while he was in prison. Yep, absolutely. Yep. And, uh, you know, was sort of the leader of the sort of golden age of American socialism. Um, he and Ingersoll met around 1878, and um, it was there was a um, organization that uh, Debs had set up, which was this literary club, which would bring in public speakers. And one year they brought in Ingersoll, and um, you know, in his recollections, he talks a lot about how much. Ingersoll left such a huge impact on him and an influence on him, especially in terms of his public speaking style, but also in the way that he viewed religion. So like Debs was never a, Debs was not like a, like a, a atheist or agnostic. I think the best way to describe him is sort of a non-denominational sort of, sort of Unitarian social gospel Christian, I think is a good way to describe Debs. Um, where, at, but his, his views of hell and his views of sort of, of, uh, institutionalized religion and the church were always very critical. And I think Robert Ingersoll had a huge impact on him in that regard. Um, in fact, uh, in his recollections, you know, Debs talks about this story about when he was 15, he 
he um, his parents were French immigrants, so he was Catholic. He went to a Catholic church and he heard this preach this priest speak about the evils of hell and all this and that. And he was just thoroughly disgusted. And he said, I will never step foot inside a church again. And and um, and so he pretty much left organized religion behind as a result. And I think a big part of that was just because of his own upbringing with sort of parents who um, instilled in him sort of the value of, of education and sort of well-rounded education. Um, like, for example, like Eugene Victor Debs, like he's named after two French novelists. He's named after um, Eugene Sue and Victor Hugo. And so um, very much like, like Ingersoll who had read like, you know, like Thomas Paine and Voltaire and, and Robert Burns and sort of these sort of, you know, uh, for their time sort of radical authors, Debs had as well. And so um, they had, a, I think, a fairly radical friendship. And Ingersoll also defended Debs during the American Railway Union strike of 1894, the Pullman strike, where, um, you know, Debs had run the American Railway Union. They had gone on strike. The public, tur- tr- you know, there was a basically a um, full court press against him in the, in the newspapers, you know, calling him crazy, calling him a drunk. And so um, Ingersoll went to the press to publicly defend him and say, like, you know, this man is of the highest of integrity. He's not a drunk. He's not insane. Like he, he cares about working people. Um, because back then, if you, you know, tried to fight, you know, tooth and nail for the, the betterment of working people, you were considered insane and a drunk. So. <laughs> even now. <laughs> yeah, even now, right? So, so yeah, so they had a very, very good friendship until Ingersoll's death in 1899. And then when he died, obviously in his recollections and in other places, um, Debs, you know, spoke highly of Ingersoll and, and, and their friendship. I, that, that, that's very interesting because I did not know that. Um, so, um, because uh, you said in your essay that Ingersoll uh, uh, became the National Liberal League became the American Secular League Union yeah. with Ingersoll as president. So mm-hmm. I did not realize that Ingersoll worked for like fought for unions because I looked at National Liberal League and I'm like, oh, liberal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and in that context, so Ingersoll, and I kind of talk about this in my essay on him and Debs. So there's a speech um, that uh, Ingersoll gave, I think, in Boston in 1878, where he's talking about how, um, because the thing is, is that Ingersoll was like, in many ways, politically, was certainly a sort of, um, you know, Republican liberal, you know, and and, you know, he had he had been a railroad lawyer. He had worked for, you know, railroads and, and he, you know, the most important trial he was involved in was called the Star Route Trials, which was um, defending a railroad. So, like, obviously, like Ingersoll's politics were not as radical as Debs's, but there are many, you know, the, in this speech in Boston, 1878, he basically says that, like, you know, this country will not become, um, you know, fully, you know, up to its potential until we fully protect the rights of workers. Um, and so that kind of stuff was always part and parcel with his own vision, which of course was, I think, limited in relation to Debs, right? So like Debs took it further, right? Because, you know, Debs was, you know, up until about, you know, 1894 was pretty much a, a pretty standard sort of progressive liberal type. It wasn't until his involvement with the American Railway Union the, the the horrific conditions he experienced and then his first you know his first time going to prison um that radicalized him that was when he read you know capital by marx he read that in prison for the first time after being arrested for the aru 
um, situation. And that's what made him go from just being more of like a progressive liberal type to being a socialist. And so um, I think that if Ingersoll had lived a little longer, I don't know if he would have become a socialist, but I think he would have looked very favorably upon Debs and his runs for the presidency, um, just based on um, his own sort of politics. So um, as well as his relationship with Debs, because a lot of times, you know, Ingersoll threw his support behind a political candidate, not just because of their policies, but because of their friendships. And that was certainly the case with like people like James, James G. Blaine or James Garfield in 1880 um, and so on. So, so yeah, I, I think that um, for sure, that's definitely the case. The other thing I'll, I'll mention briefly is that there, it was called, yeah, the, Na the National Liberty League and then it became the American Secular Union, the ARU. And the liberal was used in that regard basically to describe people who had like not only liberal political opinions, but like liberal religious opinions. So it was like Unitarians, non-Christians, free thinkers, atheists, agnostics. So liberal was used very much in a broad term in that regard. The Truth Seeker, which was a newspaper around that time that was written by D.M. Bennett, um, called itself sort of a liberal newspaper in that sort of regard. So it was liberal politically, but it was also liberal sort of like in terms of small L liberal in terms of its own ideas about religion. Okay. Um, so um, you mentioned um, H.L. Mencken, who wrote an essay about 50 years after Ingersoll died, and it's in like the mid-1940s, probably a little after World War II, mm -hmm. and he says, we need Robert Ingersoll. Mm -hmm. What is he talking about? That's a great question. So the essay, um, which was published in a book called Prejudices, so um, basically what he says is like, it's, the quote is something only like what this grand gaudy nation needs is an Ingersoll. And what he's sort of talking about is the rise of a sort of very specific form of Christianity, which is something that Mencken had covered for decades. I mean, Mencken's newspaper coverage of the Scopes Monkey Trial in 1925 sort of galvanized the nation um, and, and sort of set the tone for how those debates would be continuing forward in the debates between science and religion. Um, but in that essay, basically what he's talking about is this contrast between Ingersoll and then he also talks about sort of the evangelicals um, who he, he sort of derided. And one of the people that he mentions in particular is a guy named Dwight Moody. Um, and with this quote, I was like, well, it's very interesting. He talks about these two guys. Why would he talk about these two guys specifically? And it turns out that, you know, Macon knew something that other people didn't or, or maybe didn't, but, but didn't remember up until that point, which was that in the 1880s and 90s, um, Moody and Ingersoll were um, essentially sort of intellectual sparring partners, both in the press and on the lecture circuit. So they never had like a formal debate where they like met each other and then like went back and forth. But a lot of times what would happen is it's like Moody would go to a town and sort of, you know, proffer his sort of prosperity gospel, sort of proto-prosperity gospel. And then Ingersoll would come into town like a couple days later and talk about how Moody was full of it. And then, and then they would sort of go back and forth and back like and forth. Subtweeting. <laughs> yeah, like subtweeting, basically. It was a 19th century form of subtweeting, basically. Yes, absolutely. And so um, they did this for many, many years um, until their deaths. Both died in 1899. Um, Moody and Ingersoll. So that's kind of what he's talking about in that essay is this sort of, Inger, you know, Mencken's sort of declinate or sort of delineation of the conflict between sort of those who believe in a secular world 
who believe in reason and believe in science and mm. believe in sort of the, the advancement of humanity. And then those who are sort of like evangelicals and, and essentially, you know, mo Macon saw most religious people as morons. And so it was basically that sort of divide. The problem with that, though, is that like Macon himself politically was was largely fairly regressive. I mean, he had sort of libertarian politics. He flirted <sighs> sort of with fascism, um, you know, had quite nice things to say <laughs> about Hitler and so on. So like and the, and the secular movement has always had this problem and where in its sort of zeal for sort of advocating for a world based on reason and science, which I think most of us can say are not necessarily bad things, those are good things, but basing an entire worldview solely upon reason and science can be problematic because it sort of limits the scope of ethics, it limits the scope of like, um, you know, uh, broader understandings of humanity that might it be informed. It turns you into basically Sam Harris. Yes. It, it, his it, himself. Yep. Yes, I think so. And I think it becomes fairly regressive, um, which is something you'll see decades later with somebody like Isaac Asimov when he left Mensa. It was the same sort of situation. I oh, my about. God. Yeah. Mensa is uh, <laughs> is very is like one step away from skull measurement. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. And and it's not gotten much better. And, and one thing I because I as somebody who was involved in the secular movement for a very long time, identifies a secular humanist um, that. I find that the secular movement has a tremendous amount of problems. Um, and I've been very, very critical about- Can you talk about, about it just quickly? Of course, absolutely. So um, my big issue with the secular movement is that it's, in my opinion, it's very, very hard to organize a movement to change people's lives or to improve the world based on something that you don't believe. So if your whole thing is about well, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. I think believing in God is dumb. And I think religions are dumb. It's very hard to organize around that, right? Because say, for example, like you want to organize working class people, right? A lot of working class folks are religious and there's nothing necessarily wrong with and that. And lots right? of times, as I mean, um, Marx as, as says that um, when, when he says religion is the opium of the masses, he literally yep. means opium in the most literal sense as in a pain reliever. Absolutely. Like, yeah, it, it is. It gives, and so a lot of times, churches, mosques do give people like a safety net. Like working class people do know that if they die, their church or mosque or whatever will take have find somebody to take care of their kids. And there is a. It has more than just. It has a worldly function, I guess. Right. The way that I would describe it is religion is more than the sum of its beliefs. Mm -hmm. This is something I think about a lot, which is something that I feel a lot of people in the secular movement do not understand. So they almost they kind of view religion the way that fundamentalists do, which is this obsession with like beliefs and the and obsession random texts that you and, actually yeah. don't know. Uh, yeah, like Sam Harris often yep. like it. It's like he takes for the amount of times he accuses others of taking him out of context. What he does to the Quran is about the same thing. He does not speak Arabic. <laughs> he just like picks random crap from the Quran and says this is what. And sometimes it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. Like this guy went and stabbed this person and they're not saying, they're telling a story. They're telling a story about some random dude and it's not like you should emulate this. It's just, this is what happened. And he, so he, and of course you get the incels. <laughs> well, this is right. So that, that's why there has become, I think what's really been, I think very unfortunate, especially over the last sort of, 
you know, because the golden age, in my opinion, the sort of second golden age of American secularism was like basically 2004 till about 2016. And it sort of, and it sort of falls, it sort of falls apart in 2016. But I think for a myriad of reasons, I think a lot of people who identify as quote unquote secular or whatever, a lot of them started becoming Trump supporters. Um, A lot of them became very enamored with somebody like Jordan Peterson, which doesn't make a tremendous (laughs) amount of sense because Peterson's worldview is very like religious. Um, But it was, he was saying all the right things that they wanted to hear, which is that the, the secularists have this, like a lot of times, this sort of dis- really disjointed, caricatured idea of like what Marxism is or yes. what postmodernism is, and they don't really understand it. And the thing is, is that like, you know, Marx and Engels were both secular people. They, they, but they had an understanding of religion that was far deeper than I think the Sam Harris's of the world or the Christian. Exactly. They actually, if you look at their critique of the young Hegelians in mm-hmm. the book German Ideology, they critique the 1800s German version of the Sam Harris's. And yeah, they had a very deep understanding of of what uh, 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 of them. And Basically, in short, I mean, Engels doesn't say this exactly, use mm-hmm. these exact words, but he's like, you guys are engaging in verbal masturbation uh, and you're not <laughs> connecting with what's going on in this world. Is That's exactly right. So this is going to come to what I, I'm going to say, too, is that a lot of atheists or secularists will pride themselves on being materialists. They believe in a material universe and material conditions, right? But the way that they talk about religion is in that sort of, Hegelian sense, right? It's idealistic. It's divorced from material conditions, right? Yeah. So when you start to talk about religion, like the way Sam Harris does, where it's just kind of like reading the quotes and saying, well, this is what the book says, but it's like, but that negates like history, culture, um, you know, different, uh, you know, different ethnic groups, different social systems. Literacy I mean, it, rates. <laughs> literacy rates. It, it's, it just negates like the actual material conditions that people live in. So ironically, people who would describe themselves as being materialists aren't really materialists. And I think that's why, you know, and this is something I've sort of grappled with for a long time and something I've thought more, try to think more thoroughly is like, we need to develop a sort of Marxist, um, for better, for lack of a better phrase, a Marxist humanism where we can be secular humanists, but it needs to be rooted in some kind of material analysis. And for me, that's Marxism. Yeah. Well, what, like I said, with, um, for me, the new atheist movement always seemed uh, racist to me because yeah. it they criticized like it was right after 9-11. It seemed mm-hmm. opportunistic because right after 9-11, you could say bad things about Islam that you couldn't say before. And about how like I, I remember uh, Sam Harris writing a book about a hypothetical torture. Uh, yeah. Yep. And that's like, okay, so and then you're like, when when has that ever happened? That has never happened. So it's just making it okay or desensitizing people from bombing Muslims. And of course, his um, let's not even begin with his uh, if he hates religion, why does he support Israel? Right. Uh, it's just it's just um, twice. Like he's like, there's no Christian suicide, but that's not true. Actually, there are Palestinian Christians, half of Palestine's Christian. There are many Christian suicide bombers. Um, there are Buddhist suicide bombers, Tamil, the Tamil Tigers. Like, 
right. was fun, funny how he, he even though many people t- tell him he keeps pretending it's not true. Um, and then if you look at like Tibet with the Dalai Lama, you can see that Buddhists can be like Wahhabis any day. Um, it, it's not like any religion. It, it's all about material conditions, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, the thing about Sam Harris is that the man, first off, I think of like the quote unquote four horsemen of American atheism. So that Who are the other three? Uh, Sam Harris. Other? Oh, Christopher Hitch- Hitchens is not even American, but go ahead. Yeah, right. So like you have, you have, you know, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, and Sam Harris. Those okay. are the four, right? Three of them are not, two of them are not American. They're not Americans, right? Right. So, you know, so the four horsemen of atheism, that's what I meant to say, sorry. But like, <laughs> basically like the four horsemen, right? So of the four, in my opinion, Sam Harris is by, by far and away the dumbest. So yeah. the thing is, is that like the man, one thing I just need for people to understand, and this is like, I think this really informs a lot about Sam Harris. And, and I think anytime I try to tell this to people, it kind of changes their perspective for better or worse. So Sam Harris is a trust fund baby. Yeah. Golden girls trust fund. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, so Literally. his mother, his yeah. mother was a producer for for the Golden Girls, so yeah. he is living. <laughs> because if you read the End of Faith, you read his other books about meditation, and I've read all of Sam Harris's books, right? Oh, Lord, I, how? I went I went from being a fan to critic to hater very quickly. That's like um, torture. Reading all, how do you read it? It's just boring to me. Well, I think a lot of it is is it's you know there's life before Marx and life after Marx. Once you sort of become a Marxist, everything starts to change for you. Um, and, 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 and they are boring, right? Like Sam Harris is terminally boring because he basically kind of has the same shtick and he just sort of repeats it over and over again. And not only is he that, he's also extremely intellectually lazy. So like in the moral landscape, he has this like footnote in the back where he's like, I know that in philosophy, like there's a lot of different ways of looking at meta ethics. And, and he's like, but people find that boring. So I'm not going to go into any of that. And it's like, well, that's kind of important if you're writing a book about ethics. It's like, you know, that's kind of like writing a book about Shakespeare. It's like, well, we're not going to read any of the sonnets. We're just going to move forward. It's like, what are you doing? Um, but the thing about Sam Harris is that he is one of those guys who come into the zeitgeist, who was sort of supported by the the media. I, I think that the new atheism movement was largely a media phenomenon in which exactly. the newspapers, yeah, the newspapers and the media outlets sort of saw these guys and was like they saw because they, they were very much right because they're the, the mere image of the 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 evangelists, right? The sort yeah. of Christian theocrats. These new atheists, they were the other side of that coin. Um, one of the people who, um, despite my criticisms of his own politics, but one of the people who was I think had some of the most insightful things to say about the the new atheist movement is Chris Hedges, um, who's written a book. I think it's called like, I don't believe in atheists or it's, it's, but it's a critique of Sam Harris and all these guys. And in that book, he basically lays out, he's like, if you really, if you really take the, these, the, the way the, these men view the world and you take it to its logical conclusion, you will essentially have death camps. You know, <laughs> yes, it, essentially. It, it's, it's, it's essentially fascism. And, and, yes. and so it's, and especially with, with, well, the thing about, and the thing about Hitchens is that Hitchens was a former trot, right? So he was a Trotskyist. And yes. there is a Trotskyist to hard right pipeline, which- No, no, a lot no, of people... no, not a hard right. Trotskyist to neocon pipeline. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Thanks for the clarification. You have people like David Horowitz and others, obviously oh, Christopher Hitchens. Um, and so it's this, you know, Hitchens was somebody who was always wanting to be accepted by 
the society, right? And once he but sort Hitchens of at least has good work. What he wrote yep. about Mother Teresa was yep. excellent. Um, what he wrote he about ha- Bill Clinton was great. Yeah, yeah, and what he wrote about Henry Kissinger is priceless. I think the thing is, is that 9-11, like for a lot of people, uh, 9-11 broke Christopher Hitchens' brain. Okay. And so I would say anything sort of pre-9-11 of Christopher Hitchens is definitely worth uh, reading and checking out. Um, After 9-11 is kind of when he turns. Um, And it's that sort of, you know, this obsession or borderlining on a fetish with Islam and sort of the way they think about Islam. And, And the thing that I find fascinating is like, and sort of uh, sad is that, you know, we've just experienced another white supremacist mass shooting here in the United States, in New York, right? This guy yeah. explicitly was a white supremacist. He could be an inspired by white supremacists. He said he was, his manifesto both, in, in his manifesto, he said he was both anti-Semitic and a Nazi. Yep, flat out, right? And, you know, if you look at the statistics consistently over the last 20, 30 years, the, the kind of people who instigate the most amount of terrorist violence in the United States are white supremacists. And the United States government. And the United States government, (laughs) yes. But outside of that, it's white supremacists, right? And it's like, that are often hyper, they're either hyper-secular or they're sort of hyper-religious, but they're white supremacists nonetheless. And if you look at what the- one shooter who Mm -hmm. uh, shot the, the, I believe they were a newly married couple. Like one of them was going to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. They were like- I think they were Syrian Americans, but I might be wrong. But this guy was a Sam Harris fan, and yep. he, just, he they were their neighbors. And then he just went into their house and shot the couple and also w- w- their sister. And Sam Harris tried to make it was a parking dispute, and it was no. He did yep. it because they were Muslim, and it was a hate crime. So, right. but but Sam Harris really did not take responsibility for it. No, and nor would he, because the thing is, is that like, if you take a lot of the things he has written and you rip them out of his book, you can easily place them into like a white supremacist screed that was the justification for killing people of color or Muslims. Like it's because his view, like I said, his view of the world necessarily follows that some people get to count more than others. And it just so happens that the people who get to count more than others are white. And and ultimately, also Christian. So th- this is where you see this like unholy I alliance. Sam Harris was Jewish. So. He is. He is. He's like half Jewish. Like I think his I think his mom is Jewish, and then his oh, dad okay. is something else. But like, but you're right, right? Is it's it's this, you know, it's this. Um, and with with uh, with the other thing I was going to mention is basically like if you think of the rise of this sort of rhetoric about you know Muslims. I mean, it, to me, it seems like there's this huge disconnect between what these people are afraid of and then what's actually fucking happening. Like there's well, just there's, uh, right. one thing I have to explain to people is what yeah. uh, there used to be bars in Mecca, like strip bars in Mecca mm-hmm. uh, until 1923. So the Wahhabism was a purely like the British government supported the Wahhabis since God knows when. Like, like we can, I have files back to the 1700s. <laughs> and the British in the U.S. was the ones who installed the Wahhabis inside the land that is now known as Najd and Jazira. And um, they were very violent. They did a lot of genocide. They were psychos. Um, everyone knows that. Uh, and in fact, Lawrence of Arabia, 
he wrote a let, last letter he wrote was to the prime minister asking him to reconsider uh reconsider supporting uh the psycho wahhabis but that mm. in fact that is a purely if it weren't for the british weapons and american weapons and the fact that mm -hmm. they found oil and the american military there would be no a hundred years ago there was no wahhabism so exactly um, they don't realize that <laughs> it's a direct consequence of U.S. and British imperialism. Like this is why this exists. And again, that's getting into the material conditions, which if you read in the end of faith, when in Sam Harris's chapter in Islam, he basically just poo poos that away. He's like, I know people want to mention this as being like the most important thing, but I don't think it is. So we're going to move on and we're going to talk about bad quotes in the Quran that I found on Google. And and it's that's the thing I find extremely frustrating is that it's. People who love to think of the, like, like Sam Harris's politics are so like infantile that yeah. he cannot understand that perhaps the reason people do things is a mix of beliefs and the conditions in which they live. He completely and negates also that. So the want of resources. Exactly. The ways in which you have an imperial core, which sucks wealth, resources, labor, from these, you know, from the, the, you know, the, the overexploited nations, as Michael Parenti calls them, right? And it, it's, and they completely negate all of that to just talk about the beliefs. And I'm like, but you understand beliefs don't exist in a vacuum, which is how a lot of the modern atheist movement treats religion. They sort of treat it as if these, these exist in a vacuum without and any kind people, of tradition. And they don't even like, know if people believe what they think they believe. Like there's no, right. like, for example, there's no survey, like to show do, do these people believe in the witchcraft superstition? He just assumes they do. Yeah. Have you taken a political survey? Have you taken like a statistical method? What is it? Show it to us. None, none of that. Right. Which is ironic considering how much he cares about quote unquote science and, and, and reason and imperialism. And uh, it leads to something that, what, go ahead. Oh, I was going to finish your thought. And then I just want to ha have a quick uh, a go at him about his uh, bot PhD. Oh, please. I would love that. Once you get into that, what I was going to say mostly is that one of the things that I find really problematic in that whole movement and why I left it behind four or five years ago and have, and have basically renounced it in a lot of ways is that um, they believe in what I call the cult of reason. It's this sort of, it's this fetish for looking like you're being, um, you know, reasonable and skeptical. Well, I'm just being reasonable. I'm just being reasonable. This is the reasonable position. When in reality, if you break down the kind of way that they view the world, not only is it deeply inhumane, but it's also deeply irrational. It, it's not connected to reality whatsoever. It's not connected to empirical data. It's not connected to historical data at all. And it just, it, it, it leads me to the kind of people who, you know, sort of the debate bros online who are sort of like, well, I'm the reasonable one, therefore I'm right. It's like, first off, I, I, first off, I'm not sure if you're being reasonable. And two, even if you are, it doesn't mean that you're right. So that's, so that's the thing I find very frustrating is this obsession with being, with looking reasonable instead of actually being reasonable. And sometimes what is being reasonable? Uh, I don't know. Right. Who knows? I mean, it, <laughs> I mean, who knows what that actually means sometimes, right? Like, and that's the thing is that people like Sam Harris and others take advantage of the fact that, you know, the idea of being reasonable is kind of a squishy concept so they can kind of morph it to however they want it to be. Okay. So the quick uh, down low on his PhD is that it's funded by this nonprofit called 
Project Reason. Mm-hmm. And guess who started Project Reason? <laughs> his <laughs> mother. Yep. Um, and then like his PhD, they do the, like they do, uh, and he's not even competent. He's not even competent enough to do this experiment where they hook people up to a machine and mm-hmm. uh, think. Apparently, they're supposed to think about religious thoughts or something like that. So he has somebody else actually see. It's not even statistically valid, but he has somebody else do the experiment of um of okay can an fmri predict so they hook people up to this uh, machine and these are this is like a completely different person sam harris is not involved in this and allegedly um harris gathered like 54 people who are free of psychiatric illness and suicide ideation. And then they were called on the phone and then they were asked to volunteer. And then um, they asked a whole bunch of questions. And so if somebody who knows who what they are looking at with the MRIs, fMRIs, like they know that basically it's not different than just like hooking people up and just like go random, like right. it didn't do anything. But he did mm-hmm. write his thesis and because of the uh, and it's a, not in neurology, but in philosophy. Mm-hmm. So it's his fake PhD. Anyways. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And for those who are interested, I mean, basically, like the book that he wrote, The Moral Landscape, is basically a popular version of his PhD dissertation. Like, that is what it is, right? And it has a lot of the same problems. I mean, my thing is, is that Sam Harris and a lot of people buy into what um, the late, great Stephen Jay Gould called biological determinism, um, which is this idea that basically, like, um, humans all have these just sort of set parameters based by nature. And so they're going to be this way, regardless of whatever material conditions we have or environmental conditions that we face. Um, and Sam That's Harris is with, yeah. very eugenics-y. Oh, it is. It absolutely is. And if you look at people who are biological determinists, people like Sam Harris um, or yeah, Himmler, um, I'm thinking in more modern scholarship, people like Sam Harris, somebody like... Um, uh, e. That Wilson. guy, the bell curve guy. Um, yeah, Charles Murray. Yeah, Richard Herrnstein and, and Charles Murray. Um, the bell curve, which Sam Harris is one of the people responsible for the rehabilitation of essentially race science in America, mm-hmm. um, which is absolutely disgusting. Um, the interview that Sam Harris had with Ezra Klein, and again, I'm no Ezra Klein Vox fan. Oh, but... I remember that. He actually <laughs> yeah. made Ezra Klein look good. I was yes, like... he did. He totally did, which well, is forgot, almost impossible. Okay, I will put, put that little clip here, but... Right, that's one point. So that, like, that's a, that is a completely separate problem from the problem of racism and the problem of racial inequality. And you feel that somehow this status quo problem of just how hard it is to talk about these things is justified because of how bad racial inequality has been in the past. And I'm saying that I think, it's... I think it's, there is what you would call confusion here. I, I do think it's just important to say this. I have not criticized you, and I continue to not, for having the conversation. I've criticized you for having the conversation without dealing with and, and, and separating it out and thinking through 
the context and the weight of American history on it, not the weight the of way, American history. The weight history, of American the history weight of American is completely history on, irrelevant to... Uh, no, it, it can't it, possibly be no, irrelevant on something that even you admit is the, environmental. The only thing that is relevant... So, yes, but th- that that part of the conversation has been had. You don't have to talk... You don't have to talk about slavery. You don't have to talk about the specific injustices in the past to have a conversation about the environmental factors that very likely keep people back. Can you remind me of what happened there? (laughs) Yeah. So essentially what happened was Sam Harris had had Charles Murray on his podcast. And essentially what Sam Harris did before the interview was this like 30 minute preamble where he basically did apologetics for the bell curve, which for those who don't know, was this book that came out in the early nineties, caused a lot of controversy about whether or not um, essentially the, 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 one of the major claims of that book is essentially that black people have lower IQs. No, 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 no. He didn't say black people. He said poor people. Poor people. Yeah. But if you look at the way how poverty manifests in the yes. U.S. Yeah, that's right. I was saying like the actual like you were you were you were saying like that you, you were making a good point. But like my general thing was basically like essentially it boils down to. Yeah, that. Black people or people of color have lower IQs, regardless of what other what what other like environmental conditions. Oh, no, 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 are, no, but so. he extended this to poor whites also. So yes, yes, that's why it's um even I I don't know even t- terrible. <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely right, and he extends this even further into a book he wrote I think about ten years ago called Coming Apart, which is essentially all about the difference between sort of upper class whites and lower class whites. Yeah, um, but. Essentially, what the book argues for is because these people are always going to have a low IQ, there's no point in like putting a bunch of like social programs into proving their material conditions because Charles Murray's a hard right libertarian. He's a fellow with the funded by the uh, all the like the, you know, the libertarian foundation. Yeah, all the usual suspects, the Koch brothers, you know, um, you know, and so he's all part of that network. Right. So for a long time, like. Obviously, like the bell curve was hotly debated. Most people saw it, largely discredited it. Stephen Jay Gould, who I mentioned earlier, had ironically enough written a book called The Mismeasure of Man about 15 years before the bell curve came out. And so the refutation of the bell curve was written before the bell curve was written. Um, and um, he eventually in the mid 90s put out a revised edition critiquing and specifically going through that book and explaining why it's wrong. So long story short, Sam Harris has him on his podcast, sort of rehabilitates the bell curve idea. This gets uh, the attention of Ezra Klein of Vox Magazine. They have an interview. And in the interview, Ezra Klein basically makes the point that any, I think, humane and logical person would make, which is that you understand that, like, poverty has a huge impact on people's ability to function in society. And it also has a direct correlation to, like, their ability to have, um, you know, increased or decreased intellectual capacity. Like, that's water. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like having a bed, like having a bed, like is a huge part of like I don't know doing well. Not in having lead in your water. Is yeah, not having lead in your water. Like well, you know, yeah. having schools that function, like all these material things, and you know, and so you know, Ezra Klein lays out very logically, like there's a lot of historical precedents in America why these are the things the way they are, and Sam Harris, being the absolute scumbag that he is, said his he literally said the phrase history does not matter, and. It basically comes down to, well, this is what the science says. These are the numbers. This is what the science says. I'm not talking about history. Ezra actually pushes back because if you correct for everything, um, like there is a negative correlation as in people who are like, if you correct for all the poverty, Mm -hmm. there's like 
on the average, the average American who considers himself black actually has two IQ points higher. <laughs> right. Right. So this is the thing, right? Is it's, is it's, they, because the thing is, is that the, the bell curve serves an ideological function, right? It, it's not, it's not really a piece of science. It's a piece of ideological writing. It's, its goal is to basically advocate for the destruction of the welfare state, which is yeah. something that Charles Murray had written about in other books, like Losing Ground and so on and so on. And if you look at the bell curve and its influence on culture, it was decidedly negative. And his yeah. influence on the 1996 welfare reform bill. Yep. That where Bill Clinton literally cites him. Yep, absolutely. Or even uh, the New Republic when it was under the editorial direction of Andrew Sullivan, where they had this front page of a black woman smoking, holding a child and saying, like, we need worf- welfare reform now. And it's like, well, that's supposed to be the liberal magazine. My God, what does the conservative magazine look like? I don't and, know. you know, so it's it's that's the thing. Right. So. You know, Sam Harris is essentially peddling in race science, and he's constantly done this again and again and again and again. So much so that when he had a former white supremacist, Christian Piccolini, on his podcast, um, he was asked in the crowd about, you know, Stefan Molyneux, who's this like YouTube personality who's a white supremacist who sort of believes in a lot of the, the race yeah, science but, stuff. But, but Molyneux is even worse because he has yeah. a cult and he tells right. people to abandon their family. Yes, he's even worse, right? So what was very interesting was that the original version of the interview that Sam Harris had with Christian Piccolini had all of the Stefan Molyneux stuff in it. When it finally went onto the feed, like that was for the patrons or whatever, all that stuff was gone. And somebody pointed this out on Reddit. They're like, why is all the Stefan Molyneux stuff gone? Because it was Christian Piccolini basically laying out why Stefan Molyneux is full of, full of crap. And, the and, and in the cult and this and that and the other. And all that stuff was cut out. And the thing you have to understand is at the time is that all of this was going on within sort of an eco, sort of an intellectual ecosystem of people like Stefan Molyneux, Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris. They were all sort of, it was this like weird incestuous relationship. So nobody wanted to step on the toes of anybody else because it was all part of the sort of broader grift of I'm going to go on this show and then I'm going to go on this show and then I'm going to sell a book. And like, that's the thing, right? It's like, when you think about the sort of economics of the the quote-unquote intellectual dark web, you, you realize pretty quickly that it is pretty much a grift um, that just uh, sort of whips people up into a frenzy of sort of white supremacy and regressive politics. Welp, we finally hit the point where we can no longer listen to the episodes due to lack of cash flow. Better get over to Substack and subscribe or you won't get any more germane ad reads. Just kidding. As usual, I listened to the intro, so I know this episode is about godlessness in America. So they probably talked about me in high school at some point. Okay, so if you want witty stuff, you better subscribe to Substack, or it's nothing but cringe wannabe stand-up material going forward. So, if you're not subscribed to our Substack, we kindly invite you to support us by going to historically.substack.com and subscribe today. Also, check us out on YouTube and Twitch with Late Nights with Lennon. Get commentary and trolling from 100 years ago by the absolute master of the form and see how little has changed. It is what is to be done. Oh, yeah. Stefan Molyneux was like trying to prove why a single ethnic states were better. And he went mm-hmm. to Poland and I'm like, uh, do you remember what happened in Poland in a certain, let's say, in between 1920 to 1945 
where <laughs> there used to be many ethnicities and then um things happened and that <laughs> and it's right like, um yeah the, there was a big event there that made it more singular in its ethnicities right yes <laughs> i wonder what that thing was hmm i'm you know it's a just trying to think here yeah i mean that's the problem with these kinds of people is and, and the thing is is that again these are the people who are just like the oh well i'm just citing the science crowd this is why you need to be very careful about people like that you need to be weary of of the idea of scientism the yeah. idea that, that science is the be-all end-all that we don't have to think about ethical questions in fact albert einstein wrote about that and if you yeah. uh, actually mc hammer quote tweeted me when i showed uh, him oh, that's about cool. albert. so albert einstein actually wrote about this like how science is not a be-all end-all because uh, and if it and i would think two or three times before ever disagreeing with albert einstein well, exactly, exactly. And, you know, another person who wrote very, I think, profoundly on this topic as well was the cultural critic Neil Postman um, in the 1990s. He wrote a book called Technopoly, where there's a whole chapter devoted to the problem of scientism. And he lays it out very clearly about, like, these are the problems of building a society solely upon science and not upon ethics or politics or any kind of, you know, collective imagination about how we want to live together. Yeah. Albert Einstein wrote the rest is uh, yeah yeah actually wrote about it because um yeah I, he basically explained that like yeah you guys are physicists but um you can't divorce yourself uh, uh he, he knew from the forefront of from having cultivated a philosophical habit of mind made him a better physicist mm -hmm. so you can't just think about physics you have to kind of engage in society is what he wrote um i, I yes. can send you that essay and i would love yeah. to yeah that'd be great yeah, yeah. like i said it, you have to think twice or I, I mean i would definitely think twice or three times before disagreeing with albert einstein because his name is synonymous with being a genius yes and he was also a socialist and and he a stalinist <laughs> yep yeah and so the thing about i think the other thing too is that like this is a problem that's still occurring like we've talked about the charles murray thing like recently in 2022 i just saw i think it was on um the i think skeptical inquirer magazine one of the magazines of the skeptic movement um is an article about overpopulation that they're still peddling the overpopulation oh stuff oh my god actually in 2022. this reminds me of actually another ezra klein interview with bill gates oh where yeah bill, ezra that like the edited that part of the interview out but i mean africa has okay has a billion people so it's a vast vast continent um it's bigger than south america it's like and bill gates was arguing that africa was overpopulated which is not true um and ultimately when you think about it it's basically bill gates thinks that there are too many black people in africa pretty much um, yeah um and that's kind of what got Ezra to delete it. But overpopulation is nothing because the, in the entire population of the seven times the population of the world can fit inside of Texas and we can make food and whatever else, yep. everything they need inside of Texas. And each person can have like a home with a yard. Right. Um, so people don't understand. Yeah. Anytime somebody talks about the Malthusian idea of mm -hmm. overpopulation, it's usually too many. It's racism in disguise. 
pretty much because they never say that like there's too many people in Europe or there's too many people in the United States. They never say that. It's always there's too many people in Africa. There's too many people in Asia. Like it's it's always very clear where they think there are too many people. Mm-hmm. And and the thing is, it's like we make enough food in the, in the world to feel to feed 10 billion people. The average American wastes about 40 percent of the food they and, purchase every year. So yeah. it's not. Yeah. And in China, um, they've like made specific types of rice that can grow in environments like the, right. in, in, that. I mean, we, we, we can make way more food for everyone. And yeah, we, we might not. The, the thing is that the uh, the underbelly is that you can't live the uh, Bill Gates American lifestyle. Right. Which, and that's what they don't want to give up, I guess. And I think the thing that really bothers me about Bill Gates is that Besides no him being a eugenicist? Yeah, besides him being a eugenicist is that nobody elected this guy. Yeah. Like none of us democratically decided that he's going to be the second largest funder of the World Health Organization or the fact that he's going to lead like he's going to be one of the main people to stop the TRIPS waiver so that people could you know manufacture COVID-19 vaccines around the world. The fact that he's now becoming the single largest private landowner of farmland in the United States. Like all of these things are it's like we didn't elect this guy. First off, he doesn't have a college degree in like epidemiology or biomedical science because he doesn't have a degree in anything. No, no, he doesn't. And actually, we did an entire episode about Bill Gates. Um, uh, Have you listened to it? I have. Yes, it's Uh, great. um, With Bobby Malhotra. And Mm -hmm. he doesn't have a degree in anything. And his mom got him his IBM thingy. um, Yeah, his mom got him um, and uh and also he built the bill oh and and let okay actually now that i'm looking through up the notes uh yeah Mm -hmm. they they invest in weapons the bill and melinda gates foundation yes it isn't the whole yeah go ahead sorry oh there's also the whole uh, defective polio vaccine that caused 500,000 people in india to get paralyzed yep i read all about that yeah the, the, the thing about it is that like now, look, I think philanthropy is generally a scam. It's mm-hmm. it's 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 largely nonsense, but let's just accept it on its own terms. Isn't the point of philanthropy to end up less money th- th- at the end of it than before? And yeah. the problem is, is that like Bill Gates is worth like three, like three times more now than he was when he left Microsoft in the early 2000s. Not to mention the fact that a lot of this was just reputation laundering because in the early, late 90s, early 2000s was the last time that the U.S. Justice Department decided to really do an antitrust case against Microsoft. And he was on television every night looking like a complete asshole. So it's 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 that was his whole goal was to take it from looking like a complete and total monopolist jerk capitalist scumbag, which he is, and making him look like this warm and fuzzy thing. The thing about the interviews that he does with Ezra Klein, like, like Bill Gates is a majority shareholder in Comcast, which owns Vox. Like it's it's. <laughs> oh my you know. God! Okay, yeah, Vox <laughs> does that sometimes. They did this other thing where they were like wrote this anti TPP from Comcast. Yeah. yeah, it's like yeah, yeah, we got so, it. So it's like that's my whole thing. Is it's like it's again. It's why are we letting these people simply by virtue of hoarding wealth? decide decisions for billions of people. That's just not, to me, that's not a a good way of organizing society at all. Mm -mm. That's a terrible way of organizing society. Um, Okay, by the way, I'm sorry, but uh, I'm going to have, okay, so in your thesis, you also Mm -hmm. mentioned um, this, uh, I guess uh, the American Secular Society is a progenitor for Center for Inquiry? Yes, I went to their website today and just clicked on the, the first story. Mm-hmm. And 
for while they're supposed to be skeptical, what they did was they wrote something about North Korea. And what they did was they copied and pasted this CODA story about North Korea. And um, they somehow are not skeptical about it enough to even look at what the original story, uh, what Rod- Rodung Sinman is the official publication of uh, the Korean Workers Party. So not only did they not go and check, did Rodung Sinman actually say, what this coda story claims it's saying no they did not the coda story actually links to this nknews.com which is funded by the national endowment for democracy uh it's like radio free asia yeah so basically the first thing is that yes north korea did give up vaccines in that in that it said they said china offered a million vaccines And they said that right now we have COVID under control. Um, Mm -hmm. We don't need it. Give it to Africa is what they said. Um, I mean, that's what they did. It's not that they don't believe in vaccines. It's that they're like, we are not like it's they they are that they treated it like a triage. And he's like, look, only 18 percent of Africa is vaccinated. We have 60, 70, I don't know, whatever percent. So they mischaracterized that. And also, they did not even check. So it's like, if you're going to be a skeptic, at least make sure your sources that you cite link to are like, if you're, if, if you're going to talk about Rodung Sinman, there better be a Rodung Sinman article you're going to link to, not an ED funded, not, uh, uh, I don't know, any weirdness that just makes up lies. Right. Right. And, and it says it advises. So then I checked it. So basically they said it has it, it advises people to take antibiotics. I could not find this advice on Rodung Sinman, but I did find it in the uh, National Endowment for Democracy funded NK News, which is not Rodung Sinman. Mm-hmm. So it does not do that. It also calls for um, Angung. Wang Wan, a traditional Korean concoction. Nope, it does not do that. Um, we, we basically, I mean, that's just laundering or, or racism um, yeah. at that point. Um, and it's not even a Korean concoction. It is a Vietnamese. <laughs> uh, <laughs> never mind. Um, uh, yeah, it's like a, a abbreviation of a Vietnamese, um, uh, um, whatever. Yeah. And um, so I was not impressed by the their skepticism. When it- <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is so one of the things that the skeptic movement has, which I think is I think why I'm I, I'm no longer really a part of it. It's why I, I don't ascribe to it is one is it's its commitment to really two things. One, its commitment to neoliberalism. And two, its commitment to anti-communism. So those two things really Uh, inform Okay, because like I said, I was like shocked. I'm like, okay, if you're going to be skeptic, just just make sure that, okay, if you're going to, just make sure you're linking to the right thing. Like that's not, or else that's basic source checking. Right. And there's a tremendous amount of like, the, the thing is, is that like, these were the kind of people who 
you know, CFI used to be a little better. Like, so when it was originally founded, it was founded as, um, I think it was called the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, something like that. Mm-hmm. And one of the founders of it was a guy named Paul Kurtz, who I've written about before. Um, and Paul Kurtz was very critical of the direction of CFI, especially towards the end of his life. He died in 2012. And he was very critical of the New Atheists. He was very critical of the sort of angry, um, bombastic nature of them and was was very unhappy about the direction that the movement was going in. And essentially, he was forced out of CFI. They, they basically, they removed him from his own creation mm-hmm. um, as a result of his criticism. And then a few years after he died, CFI merged with the Richard Dawkins Foundation. So it's, 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 they literally did the thing that the guy who, one of the main organizers of that organ, of that organization did not want to happen. And it happened anyway. And so that kind of, that pervades everything. And so the sort of the, what I call the sort of, (laughs) the sort of secular industrial complex, where it's, it's the, the guiding principles are, you can be skeptical about um, like ghosts, you could be skeptical about alternative medicine, but, but you, sure, you can't be skeptical yeah. of skeptical about whether or not King Kim Jong Un can reanimate the dead. <laughs> exactly, this is the thing, right? Is it you cannot be skeptical about what you're told about in Western media in regards to the DPRK or Cuba or China? Um, it's a virulent and a strong anti-communism, which pretty much because if you look at the history of the secular movement, a lot of the people who were involved were. Uh, especially early on, well, a lot of them ended up becoming people who were funded by the State Department. They were sort of neocons. Somebody like um, uh, Sidney Hook is a good example of this, um, who was a Marxist and then renounced Marxism and became a neoconservative. Um, and so, you know, it's, 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 there were whole networks like very similar to like partisan review, right? Because the partisan review was like funded by like the CIA, right? It's the same kind of thing where you have these sort of center or left of center networks that are very, you know, vehemently anti-communist and that they get the mainstream sort of attention and they get the mainstream um, sort of acceptance. And so I'm, I agree with you completely that skepticism only goes up to a point. And that point is basically not ever challenging U.S. empire and never really challenging the narrative surrounding um, actually existing socialism. Oh, well, for me, it, it, to me, it's just reasonable. It's like, does yeah. it sound like some kind of what a normal, like, like what intelligent people, like if, if I were, let's just pretend I am the caricature that the U.S. pretends North Korean government is. If mm-hmm. I'm that evil, how am I manufacturing consent? I still need to do that. And right. it's not by recommending random Vietnamese. Uh... <laughs> right. <laughs> it wasn't even like traditional Korean medicine. Um, uh, so it, it it's like you have to think about it. And, right. um, and yeah, like for me, I just... Uh, I, in fact, with a lot of these um, pro-war propaganda, mm-hmm. if you just click on the, the on their alleged source, their source is not saying what they claim their source is saying. So if, if their yeah. source is saying the sky is pink, they say Bob uh, from University of X says the sky is pink. And then you click on Bob's uh, paper. He's not saying mm-hmm. the sky is pink at all. But so right. like the, it's like all, a lot of the neocon war propaganda literature is based on you not just checking the so- sources, which as a librarian, can you talk a little bit about site checking? Yeah. So that's a really great, that's a really, really good point. 
So one of the things that we do extensively at the Indiana Historical Bureau is we run our, our historical marker program and we put markers across the state on a variety of different topics. We go out of our way to make sure that when we make a claim about something, we have a primary source to back that up. Okay, so what is a, prim um, uh, yeah, historically uses only primary sources. So what right. is a primary source? So primary source is something that goes back to describing the original event in detail. So it could either be like a manuscript, so say, you know, a diary, or it could be a newspaper in certain contexts. It could be a magazine article in certain contexts, basically, you know, contemporary to the event. Audio, video, audio recordings, oral histories, um, uh, you know, obviously letters, um, you know, and, you know, internal documents, anything that can be tied directly to the event. And then secondary sources are basically articles, monographs, books that use primary sources to create an analysis of something. And so there's often good secondary and then there's bad secondary. And we can always kind of point out what bad secondary is. Bad secondary is one that tends to just use a bunch of other secondary sources for their conclusions. Whereas if you're going right back to the primary sources consistently, you're going to make much better conclusions. Um, and this is something that, um, especially with, with um, post-Soviet scholarship, has been very critical, has been going back to the primary sources about specific topics. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm going to have to get into a mini rant with um, his <laughs> name, Timothy uh, Schneider. Okay. Schneider, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> half of it. Okay. So half of his sources are from 1930s Germany, and they had to be translated from its original German in the 1930s. Uh, uh -huh. So those are invalid sources because of the Nazism. And yep. then he um, does not speak either Russian or Ukrainian. And he will like proof of that is that the Russian, okay, the letter that looks like B in English is V in Russian. Okay. And he's um, early on, he's, it, it, this is like not a historical, he's pretending it's a historical happening, but it's like, it's kind of like some like Ukrainian tale about some fool who goes to bury himself or something like that. Right. And he makes the primary mistake of confusing the V with the B. So his name is, uh, his name starts with the V, but he mistransliterates it to the B. And so, yeah. Um, and and I just assume everything they say about the Soviet and and what you notice is that yes yeah everything they say about the Soviet Union is completely out of context. Right. So for example, um, uh, my favorite is I always tell people oh yeah yeah what should I do with the Gulag Archipelago I say read it, um, <laughs> and <laughs> if you believe in what they say you'll see that uh, he, he like that uh, uh, my favorite is. Um, it, 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 his crime, okay, he says he was arrested by a Smirch agent. It, so you have to look at when Smirch was around. It was around between 1940 and 1945 for a particular reason. And he was allegedly arrested for sending a letter to a friend. Well, that friend was in the UPA or the Ukrainian Insurgents Army, who mm -hmm. is aligned with Hitler. Yep. The and Bandera in that types. letter, yeah. he gives up locations of various positions of the Red Army, which is treason. And so you're like, yes, he did get arrested for sending a letter to his friend. But the minute you realize it was a Smirsch agent, 
mm-hmm. like lights should have gone. Like he's not very clear about the years there. And then you're like, oh, 19, he was arrested in 1943, which then makes it very justified. And then you read the rest of the book and you're like, oh my God, he, he is a whining crybaby is what yeah. you get. <laughs> oh, well, and the that. thing is, the thing is, even his wife years later basically said like, it's not, it's, it's mostly well, a piece of literature. It's not, not like a Schrodinger's um, thing on it. If you, if you, for your anti-communism, if it's too true, yeah. It is also true when you read it. <laughs> right, right. And the thing is, is that like, if you look at, you know, somebody like Solzhenitsyn, right, who was- He also, let's not forget, hold on, hold on. Yeah. Yeah, One la- last thing. He also takes a time to count how many Jews there are in each level of the, he spends a lot of time counting Jews. And yeah. if we are to be believed the, if he is to be believed and his survey of all the Jews and the Soviet government is right, the original Bolshevik cabinet had 17 Jews, one Russian, one Georgian, and one Armenian. So it kind of goes to show you that he's extremely anti-Semitic. Totally, without a doubt. And he was also, I find that the Gulag Archipelago as a document itself is generally, it's not really, it's like it has wisps of like truth in it, to a certain extent in, in terms of like specific facts, but it's mostly a piece of literature. It's not like a, it's not something you could read as like an historical document. Like I would not count the Gulag Archipelago as a primary source. I, just oh, I would not either, but I would also, but I'm saying you like, if you're an mm-hmm. anti-communist who used to think it was a primary source, mm-hmm. once uh, I show you all of what he kind of confesses, like with a, a like the typical arrest in the Soviet Union, like you get to pack your food and this agent waits in the middle of the night while you pack while your wife packs food, underwear. I'm like, what? Uh, <laughs> 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 That's not how arrests happen in America. And you're like, and then they take you to the Moscow train station where they put you up in this like really crappy hotel while you wait for your show trial. And I'm like, hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, that's like, he just like, it, it's like, um, okay. So, th- but basically, everything is mis even today, everything about Russia or is mistranslated. So, uh, or deeply out of context. Right. Um, and, it, and a lot of uh, Iran too, often mistranslated and deeply out of context. So yeah. Uh, but I'm ranting. So you, you finish your thought. No, no, I, I agree with you about, you know, the primary sources are, it's so important. So for example, one of the things that's often very much a part of, you know, history programs um, is a foreign language requirement where you have to learn a foreign language, especially one that's related to your research. Um, and so, Which one you did know, you learn? So mine was mostly German. Ah. Um, so, and, oh, and you speak I, German? I really don't. <laughs> I, I got I got good enough. I got good enough to read it. Oh, okay. Um, because I, but I, if you were to hear German videos, would you be able to be good enough to subtitle it? Because I have a really good like a lot of like Nazi propaganda videos uh-huh. that I need help subtitling. 
I, I probably couldn't. It's been so many years now since I've actually done Darn. it that I, I'm sorry. <laughs> but yeah, sorry. it's one thing about my brain is it's I've tried so hard over the years. Like the two things that just don't stick in my brain are math and foreign languages. I try so hard and I'm just not very good at it. Oh, no um, but anyway, like you're right in the sense that like when you're when you're working with primary sources, especially ones in a different language, it is absolutely essential that when you are, say, translating something, you run that by somebody who's either a native speaker or a fluent speaker. That's what I did when I worked on my master's program was I used a lot of German newspapers from mm -hmm. the early 20th century, late 19th century. My friend, Nick, who is receiving his, P he's working on his PhD in the University of Munster. He's not a native speaker, but he's a fluent speaker. I had him run by and I said, is this a correct translation? Are these, are these accurate? And he would say, yes, these are accurate. You know, you need to run, you need to have checks to make sure that if you're using primary sources, that are in a different language, that you're not misrepresenting them. Because I find that in a lot of scholarship, when some, something seems weird and like misrepresented, it's largely as a result of the fact that the translation was poor and nobody did like a check on it. And the thing is, is that like people like Timothy Snyder or Stephen Kotkin and others, they write these like tomes, right? They're these doorstops of a book, right? With these massive amount of footnotes well, well, and overwhelm people. Yes. And so people don't, people don't, they, they're not going to go through and like fact check everything. So check the first paragraph and what he said, that the only thing that was cited, that was citable is that somebody ate a bagel in New York City. Right, <laughs> that's, exactly. That's the only thing that matched the <laughs> citation. And that's, you don't even need to cite. Yes, I'm sure somebody ate a bagel someday in New York City. <laughs> right, right. And so that's really the trouble is that, you know, and then, you know, tall tales become something of a, so an example of this, this is an example that comes from uh, Grover Fur in relation to Trotsky. Um, I think you've had on your show and I've listened. Oh, yeah. To You're talking about the peppery dishes. Right? Yep. I'm talking about the peppery dishes. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, it, 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 like what, what happens is that in the beginning, the idea of the like, like Lenin apparently says something about peppery dishes. Yeah. And the, the, allegedly, I don't know. There's no record of Lenin saying that. But um, then it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger until like the peppery dishes take a meaning of its own. Right. And this is this is a very good example of how you you sort of critically use newspapers as a primary source, because if you go back to Grover for his analysis of this, what he talks about is how the peppery dishes line was originally published sometime in, I think, like 1923 in a newspaper. And it was mm -hmm. just sort of printed as a matter of fact. And then over time, it kept getting reprinted and reprinted and reprinted and reprinted to the point that people thought of it as being established fact. Well, what do you do with newspapers, right? If you read something in a newspaper, it's really important to get sort of a corroborating primary source, whether it be another newspaper confirming some of that stuff, although in the case of the peppery dishes thing, that's it, probably not the best way, or you try to find a primary document. So let's say there was somebody who was in the room when Lenin said that, Allegedly. And allegedly, right? Allegedly said, thank you, because I don't think he said it either. You know, he couldn't um, have in 1923. No it's after his second stroke. Yeah, there's no way he could have done it, you know? He and the date. Say anything. Well, and the date that, that, that Trotsky gives as, as saying the line like changes. So it's like sometimes it's 1922, sometimes it's 1923, like it changes. So the problem with it is that it essentially became this tall tale that then became established fact. And one of, there was actually something like this that I worked on in my master's thesis. So Lou Wallace, who was a novelist, he um, was the novelist who wrote Ben-Hur, you know. The oh, I love the movie with Charlton Heston. Charlton Heston, right? So 
Lou Wallace was from Indiana. He lived in Crawfordsville, which is about an hour from where I live. And he, his story about why he wrote Ben-Hur was one day in Indianapolis in 1876, he, he got on a train and on the train was Robert Ingersoll. And he said that he sat down with Robert Ingersoll and they talked about religion and God and heaven and hell. And after this like three hour conversation on this train ride, that this is what inspired Lou Wallace to write Ben-Hur. Now, this was a story he started kind of telling sometime in like the 1890s and it kept being reprinted and reprinted and reprinted until it became established fact. When I did work on my master's thesis, I basically completely upturned that whole story. I found a letter that Ingersoll had written to a friend where he basically said that this never happened. Um, mm. the, the quote was, this, this claim is, quote unquote, without the slightest foundation. That's the exact word for word what mm. Ingersoll said about this meeting. Now, did the, the, the event that they were supposed to be at take place in 1876? Yes, it was a Civil War uh, veterans um, event. It's the same event that Ingersoll gave the Vision of War speech. It's that same event. Were, was Lou Wallace and Ingersoll there? Yes. Were they speakers on that dais? Yes. Was there a possibility that they may have spoken to each other? Yes. Do I think they did? No. And the reason I don't think they did is because Lou Wallace, outside of telling the story, has no primary sources to back up whether or not this actually happened. And whereas Ingersoll, you can actually go back to a letter that he wrote to someone saying, this is not true at all. And so I lay out my thesis. I'm like, this is probably not true. You know, and I think it's it's whether we're talking about uh, Lou Wallace talking about Ingersoll or we're talking about the pepper dishes remark. It's very important for primary sources to be scrutinized to whether or not they're accurate, because if you just quote something as being accurate and not really try to find additional sources to make sure that that claim is accurate, you could be reprinting something that's actually a falsehood. Like Mussolini being a new hope. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Can you finish? So Robert Ingersoll never spoke to him or they never had a debate on the train? Like, what was the lie about the... So the lie is basically about the train ride. So did they probably have a conversation with each other? Maybe. But in the letter that Ingersoll wrote to, I think his name was Joseph Vardaman, um, he, he, uh, around the time, right? So this was very contemporaneously when... because. Ingersoll wrote this letter to Vardaman sometime in the 1880s. And so this is when Lou Wallace was starting to say this all the time and, and would repeat this story again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And so I, we don't have Vardaman's letter to Ingersoll, but in, I would imagine in Vardaman's letter to Ingersoll, Vardaman basically asked him, like, have you seen this stuff about Lou Wallace talking about you? And then Ingersoll probably replied back, yeah, it's not true. I didn't do this. So they may have had a conversation at that event in 1876. Mm -hmm. We don't have any historical evidence to suggest that they did, but we know for a fact that just based on the Ingersoll letter alone, as well as the fact that the way in which Luwal told the story changed over the decades, mm -hmm. we kind of know that it's probably not true. I also, like when I was working on this, I also had the benefit of my boss at the time was a Lou Wallace expert. He had written mm -hmm. his master's thesis on Lou Wallace. And so he told me, he's like, Lou Wallace was a hound for publicity. He would find somebody who was famous and ride their coattails all the time. And he used to make up all this stuff. His, his autobiography is full of all kinds mm -hmm. of stuff he made up. So it's pretty good. It's probably a good hunch that, um, that Lou Wallace was not telling the truth. Um, and that 
or if he de- if, or if they did talk to each other, it may have been a few pleasantries back and forth on a dais before one spoke. You know what I mean? So like, that's the thing is so like Lou Wallace is an extremely unreliable narrator, um, like consistently, whereas Ingersoll generally isn't like, um, and part of that's because most of when he's writing about contemporary events that he's involved in, he's writing about them contemporaneously. Ingersoll never wrote a memoir. He never, he didn't live long enough to do that. He Mm -hmm. died of a massive heart attack at the age of 65. Like he just never lived long enough to do that. So what we know of his life, we know through contemporary stuff, um, whether it's letters, newspaper articles, interviews, he did and so forth. But yeah, so my thinking is that the, like I said, I don't think this train ride that inspired the Wallace happened very much like the peppery dishes remark didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I said, there's a lot that whenever <laughs> I, like, I, I, I feel like that's why I have to, uh, I'm working on a book about the, like, like the history of the Soviet union, because mm-hmm. um, the, what, what people don't realize is that there's two kinds of biases when you read these history. The one is the class bias. Imagine mm-hmm. if in America, uh, pe- pe- really poor people came and then they like, and then you just ask uh, the rich people what they think of these poor people. And they're going to say all these horrible things. Um, right. And then imagine if you ask um, these really racist rich people what uh, how these poor black people who are in charge um, and there's a racial component to to the whole Russian thing too. That what are they going to say? And people don't understand these biases that right. that existed back then that may not exist right now. But yeah, those are like so. If you're gonna like the, the like um so so it is just like that um and then the. My my favorite is uh, I was watching this video of this um, Tibetan alleged um, victim of communism, uh-huh. and she literally says, "We used to have a whole flock of sheep, but after the communists came, I was left. We were left with only sixteen or seventeen sheep." And I'm like, I don't know much about sheep. But 16 or 17 sounds like a whole flock to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that definitely sounds like quite a bit. No, I think the story about Tibet is, is very interesting because, you know, most of my understanding of this has been informed by Michael Parenti's work on it. Have um, you read my article about it? I, I may not have. I'm sorry. Okay, I'll send it to you. <laughs> um, but the Parenti one is the stuff that he's written. And I forget, I think it's called like the, I forget his Friendly feudalism. Is, yeah. Yeah. Friendly feudalism. Yes. That's excellent. Um, and then, cause I first learned about this in high school when a show that I used to watch pretty consistently was Penn and Teller's bullshit. And oh, yeah, they had Parenti on one day. And they had Parenti on for a couple episodes. One they did was ho- the episode they had holier than now where he criticized the Dalai Lama. And he laid all okay, this here's, out. Hold on. Here's my article about yeah, it for later. Thank you so you don't much. have to read it now, but yeah. Go no, ahead. thank you so much for sending that to me. Um, I will definitely read that later for sure. Um, but when I, you know, like as a, as a, as a young guy, like I was sort of, oh, the, the Dalai Lama, peaceful guy, hangs out with Richard mm. Gere. Like I didn't know anything about him or whatever. And then you read, you, you learn what Perenni's talking about. And you're like, oh my God, he basically led a slave kingdom. <laughs> and you're just like, what? And what the is Dalai going Lama on? does not deny this either. In his no. own autobiography, he says, Our, outside the monasteries, our system was futile. Like he's never denied this. Nope, not at all. And, and, and so 
And he's basically said, like, it's a real bad thing. And then it's like, if you just start doing, like, the deep dive on the Dalai Lama, it's like the fact that he was basically, like, he got, he received a salary from the CIA. And, like, it, you, he didn't, you, but his brother did. His brother did. And, like, that you, you, he, he directly benefited from, like, the largesse of U.S. empire. And you're kind of going, like, wait a minute. <laughs> and uh, it really does put everything about him in more and more perspective. I mean, I think that there is, I think some, you know, sort of Buddhist gurus are. He's not, okay, this is my thing. If mm-hmm. left on his own, he's not a bad guy. Right. If, like, if he, basically, like, when he was uh, hanging out with Mao, he had a good influences around him, and he's a good guy with but unfortunately, he's never been left on his own. He always has these bad influences around him. Yes, I think that's a fair point. And and so, yeah, I mean, when you realize that, like, you know, um, that when you see, like, because when I was a kid, like, it was learning about, like, the doll and the, like, the whole free Tibet thing became a thing when I was a kid. Um, it was like when Radiohead would have it, like, on their, like, concert oh. stages and stuff like that or or you, or you the 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 whatever the brad pitt movie was or whatever oh seven years in tibet uh, that one um okay that one i, I do have to quickly talk about this sure go it for was it. the autobiography of heinrich Heirer. um and um we will put this up but here's a picture of heinrich Heirer with hitler and then himmler is on the uh, he's the guy between hitler and himmler in this picture yeah, yeah <laughs> i'm not, not kidding he's literally <laughs> the guy between hitler and himmler and um, <laughs> right i'll right. send you the picture um if uh, uh i'll share my screen um yeah no i i it's when i learned that i was kind of like wait a minute i mean it's just like it's so um, so, it's him, so himmler had this weird obsession um and uh so he got lucky in that he was in tibet not being involved in the war for the seven years during the war. Mm-hmm. Hence, um, I guess he didn't do anything uh, uh, Nazi-ish, I guess. <laughs> he was a mountaineer. But the Brad Pitt movie, mm-hmm. uh, like, forgets to mention that. Oh, of course, of course. Um, you know, Seven you know. years in Tibet. Okay, uh, let me share my screen. Um, yeah. By, by the way, what are you working on next? Like, are you working on any um, uh, essay? Like, like uh, uh, do tell us. What, well, uh, let me just share the screen. Yeah, for, sure. For this. Okay. Yeah. Do you see this? He is the guy between Hitler and Himmler. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Uh, this guy. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's him. Yeah, he's unmistakable because I've only seen older pictures of him. But yes, that's him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is definitely him. So the the next few projects I'm working on are I'm uh, I'm working on um, finishing up a historical marker for Mother Jones, the labor leader. Oh, my God. When you finish that up, you better come back. Yes, yes, absolutely. And then the other thing that I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be doing an analysis of and this will probably be my next like essay I'll be doing for like the conference circuit next year will be. Um, Eugene V. Debs and his thoughts and feelings on the Bolshevik Revolution and the early Soviet government, um, which 
So, I mean, long story short, like Didn't he, he died before. So he died in 1926. So, oh, okay. So, okay, fine. He does have some thoughts. So he does have some thoughts. And essentially, like the Cliff Notes version is because as I was working on my project about him and Ingersoll, I also realized, oh my goodness, he's like writing about the Soviet Union. And there has not really been like a, I think a, a, a real scholarly analysis of Debs and his um, you know, thoughts and ideas on the Soviet Union, but essentially like the, the Cliff Notes version is that um, he definitely, towards the end of his life, declared himself a Bolshevik. He was very much in support of the Russian Revolution, very much in support of the early Soviet government. His main critique was essentially, um, and this is something I think maybe, you know, limitation with just his own, you know, background or whatever, but basically his main critique was, was political violence. Um, um, and yeah. Okay. For that, I always have to say, look at America. Right. Uh, okay, so right after they ended slavery, the KKK came back. Um, don't we wish, you, uh, this is the difference. Um, I, I actually tweeted this out the other day. So what's his name? Ulysses uh, Grant. This is what he said to the, like, so the KKK had a really huge insurrection in the 19, sorry, in the 1872, they had, a really like huge insurrection um and this happened because i was like and let me read you what ulysses uh grant said during that insurrection um congress determined and senate determined that uh the um kkk was the biggest threat so he said, a condition of affairs now exists in some of the states of the union, rendering life and property insecure and carrying the life of the males and the collection of revenue dangers. Proof that such a condition of affairs exists in some localities is now before the Senate. That the power to correct these evils is beyond the control of state authorities, I do not doubt. That power of the executive of the United States acting within the limits of existing laws is sufficient for present emergencies is not clear. This is what Lenin said, shoot and deport hundreds of these drunken white terrorists. <laughs> right, right. And, and, and so and I, that's the difference between yeah. having the chain gang versus going to outer space. Um, that's right. And I think that that's, and I think that um, when we think about... By the way, the, the White Army is like the KK Russian version. I mean, not that you really need to uh, go that... Like, there's not a big leap of faith you need right. to know that the White Army is the Russian version of the KKK. <laughs> right. So, I mean, in general, like, if you... If, I mean, in general, I will say, like, in general, like, Debs's view of the Bolshevik Revolution and the early Soviet government was largely positive, without a doubt. Oh. And, and, uh, and I think that his criticisms again, again, I think it's also just like the ways in which you think about violence, right? So it's like, of course, like, you know, Debs was, was in many ways a pacifist. He, he was vehemently against World War One, And so, you know, I think he was still very much, I think, in the mold of in some respects, I think sort of reformism and sort of the limits of reformism, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, revolutionary politics require a break, right? And so mm -hmm. that break requires violence. And I think that sometimes that well, makes Well, I mean, you have to remember who right. started the violence. It's exactly. the drunken white terrorists. It's not exactly. the Bolsheviks. Exactly, Bolsheviks right. came there with a request. 
they, 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 they're responding to what the conditions are. This is the one thing, like, I always get in debates with people about, like, when people are critical of certain, you know, uh, societies. And I was like, you always have to understand what came before it. What was there before? What were they responding to? Like, that's so important. And so um, I still need to continue to do my research and go through his letters. But that's going to be, like, kind of a, a longer piece that I am going to be doing. I'm very interested in doing. Um, the one thing I always do when I'm working on projects is making sure I've not been scooped. So I always try to like go to like JSTOR, see what people have written. And most of what people have written about Debs in the Soviet Union has mostly just been in like sort of popular socialist magazines. So I'm looking forward to doing more of like a deep dive into the letters and kind of doing a more thorough analysis of, you know, his thoughts as that society was emerging. That's awesome. Come back for both. Okay. <laughs> and how do people find you? You have a TikTok, um, any other social media? Yeah, so I'm in, I'm on Instagram too, um, Justin Clark, PH, PH for Public History. Uh, and then well, you can... Why yeah. don't you just send us the links to all of it? Yeah, um, sure. So you're on Instagram, TikTok, and what else? TikTok, and then I have my website, justinclark.org. I have not visited your website. I feel yeah. so under-researched, sorry. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> how did you get the .org? Um, uh, this page I, on, uh, unavailable. Oh, I'm not, just, how do you spell your name? Uh, J-U-S-T-I-N-C-L-A-R-K.org. It should work. I've, I've made sure to pay for it. <laughs> yeah, now it works. I had okay, misspelled cool. Clark. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, so I put this together. And a you have years a podcast. Ago. Um, you'd never told me about that. And now I feel yes. so under research. No, you're totally fine. Um, so I, have, I do a podcast um, with my with uh, with uh, my friend Corey Johnston, who's based, oh, I'm based out of Corey? Canada. It's Red Reviews. Oh, you, you, oh, oh, yeah. oh, so, oh, wait, wait, oh, oh, you, you do, you're, I did not realize you were on Corey John. I know, okay, I, I do know your podcast. I just didn't cl click the yeah, face to the yeah. name. I'm sorry. No worries. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, uh, we, you know, we do a variety of, it's called Red Reviews. We do book reviews, basically, of, of books um, relating to history, politics, economics, all kinds of stuff. Um, and we have done some, deep dives into Marxist theory. So we've done a podcast on state revolution. We've done a podcast on the Communist Manifesto. This year, we'll be doing a podcast on imperialism mm -hmm. by Lenin. We'll be, we'll be doing um, Rosa Luxemburg. Um, and then um, just to satisfy the Trotskyists, because we keep getting comments, we will be talking about um, the permanent revolution mm -hmm. and results and prospects. But um, but I, I try to read things that not only I, I find enlightening, but things that I maybe don't agree with, but I think are um, helpful for people to understand in the discourse. So that's like, we, we, we did an episode, we're going to be doing an episode on like Kropotkin's Conquest of Bread and so on. So I think it's important to, to read stuff that you not only sort of agree with, but stuff you don't and give a reason, good analysis about why you find some of these things lacking. So I try to give a well-rounded kind of view in the show that I do. Okay, that makes sense. Um, uh, okay, I, it's kind of funny because I've seen your uh, YouTube show. I just did not connect your face to your... I, I'm stupid. Sorry about that. No, you're totally <laughs> fine. No worries. Uh, okay, so okay, so you're, you're with Corey. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, well, thank you so much for coming. And do come back or do send me both of those when you're ready. And do come back. And this was a very illuminating. Oh, thank, thank you, Isha, so much. And I just want to say that this has been an absolute pleasure being on your podcast. You know, during 
the pandemic is really when I kind of discovered your work and I read Lennon for the first time in, in earnestness since college. Aww. And Aww. your your work has been a huge development in my own sort of development as a Marxist-Leninist. So thank you so Aww, much. This is the biggest compliment somebody's given me. Thank you. You're very welcome. <laughs> Have a good day. You too. Take care. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.